So Luke 6, verses 12 to 36, page 1033 on the Church Bibles. Here it is. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he designated apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. <clears throat> he went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill-treat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But to love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let's just uh, keep that passage open or keep our Bible app open as we come to that. Let's pray for God's help. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you that you are the risen King, 
that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. Lord, we praise you that you are gentle and kind and merciful, that you love your enemies, even us. So Lord, please would you, in your risen power, speak to us this morning by your Holy Spirit. Show us afresh what your kingdom is like, what you are like, that we may gladly obey you and serve you. For your precious name's sake, we pray. Amen. Well, can I add my welcome? Uh, I'm John, if you don't know me, and if you're visiting, it's great that you're here with us. We've been working our way through Luke's Gospel, and we've got to this part. Uh, We've seen uh, a lot. I'm not going to try and summarize, but just right at the beginning, Luke says that he's written this Gospel so that anyone who hears the Christian faith can be certain, safe, secure that it is true, that it really is true. But I wonder if, with me, you've been looking at what is going on in Israel at the moment, in Gaza, and you find yourself understanding why some in our culture, the leading atheists of our culture, think religion is just toxic. It's poisonous. I mean, if this is what religion inspires, who would want anything to do with it? The the religious world of the Middle East. Uh, We can understand, can't we, people being put off. That the current atrocities we see, whether it's on our TV screens, with little clouds over the, the worst bits, or on our social media, the horrific atrocities being done in Israel, on the Gaza Strip, by Israel, by Hamas. The the conflict is fueled, is it not, by religion? Certain beliefs about the kingdom of God. Now, at the risk of wading into an incredibly complex situation with trite and simplistic answers, I, I do think we need to educate ourselves about the history of the conflict, just so that we can have uh, helpfully nuanced answers to people who might ask us about it. And I do want to recommend the BBC iPlayer. I, I don't recommend everything about the BBC, I just want to put that out there. But in terms of the BBC iPlayer programme with, with Jane Corbyn on the Balfour Declaration, I think is worth looking at. At bottom, the kind of Islam that inspires Hamas to do what it is doing does not want Israel to exist at all. And the kind of Judaism that is fueling an invasion is the kind that believes that they have a divine right to the whole land, whoever lives there. Uh, That's not me speaking, just just, uh, watch that iPlayer program. But the most important thing we need to do as Christians as we think about this war, as we think about the history behind it, is to get clear in our own minds what Jesus taught about the kingdom of God, which is completely different to Judaism and Islam, completely different. Uh, we, We must resist people trying to lump us in the same box as what we see on our TV screens. Now, sure, Christianity has made mistakes in the past. It has become political and politicized. 
But there's a great danger it may do so again in these days. Three things we're going to learn about what Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God here in Luke's gospel. You see, Jesus Christ began something new. He came to bring in a new covenant. And that means there's a new Israel of God. So we're to follow his 12 apostles. He came to bring a new kingdom of God. We so had to trust his power, Jesus' spiritual power, which is not a political power. And he came to bring a new family of God that loves like he loves, which, do you know what? Loves our enemies. Now, before we get going, I just want to say a few things by way of, of clarification. When, when I say there's a new Israel of God, I'm not saying that there is no fulfillment of the old covenant, but we should know what was wrong with the old covenant. We've just been thinking about it. If, if it was a, a land and, and a political territory based on the obedience of God's people, it's not going to end well. It didn't end well for old Israel. So it's not to say that Israel is not uh, fulfilled in the new kingdom and new family of God, but it's a fundamentally different Israel to the one we hear about on our TV screens. See, Jesus himself claimed to establish a new covenant, a new testament, a new kingdom in fulfillment of the old. And this is our first point, a new Israel of God. He began a new Israel of God. So we today are to follow his 12 apostles. Well, look with me at verse 12. See, at critical moments in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus prays. He did so in Luke 4 when he was prioritizing his preaching ministry over his healing and casting out of demons. And he does so here. Is this not astounding? Verse 12, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Is this not amazing? Jesus, who is the Son of God, who is one being with the Father and the Holy Spirit, very God of very God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, who we confess in our Nicene Creed, sees the need in his own life to pray all night. Such is the gravity of the decision he's about to make. Do you find that challenging? Isn't it a challenge to, to your and my foolish self-sufficiency? You know, if I face a challenge, I'm more likely to Google it than I am to pray. That's my reflex. What a mirror to our worldly ways, our trust in our own power and knowledge and wisdom that the one who has all power and all wisdom sees the need to pray all night before he makes a critical decision. When was the last time you prayed all night? I mean, I remember dimly in my student days, you know, with that sort of zeal, let's pray all night and we'll see revival. But this is for any time we face a critical decision, that the example to us that our Lord and Savior prays all night. We may stay up late for other things, I don't know, essay deadlines, travel, watching TV. 
Is it worth staying up even into the early hours, early, early hours to pray? Maybe you've got a critical decision coming up. I don't know what it might be. Would you take that model of your master and Lord and spend time in sustained, long prayer so that you depend on God and his wisdom and his power rather than your or my own? See, what is the critical decision for Jesus here? Verse 13 tells us, when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. We know from the rest of the New Testament, this is no accidental number. This is the 12, the foundation of the new community, the church. The 12 who will be gathered around the throne along with the other 12 elders of Israel, the, the perfect heavenly church. This is a new Israel beginning. Not in the sense that Israel no longer has any role within the plans of God. We know that it does from Romans chapters 14 and following. But the kingdom of God will no longer be tribal. It will no longer be spiritual. It no longer is based on a land and a, and a temple and a priesthood and a sacrifice because all of those will be fulfilled by Jesus Christ. So Jesus is beginning a new Israel at the moment when we begin to see the reaction of old Israel, first century Israel, to Jesus. You see, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, we've learned towards the end of chapter 5, as they see Jesus claim to have the authority of the Son of Man to forgive sins, accuse him of blasphemy, which will eventually lead to his crucifixion, will it not? And then the Pharisees question him about fasting, if you look with me at chapter 5, verse 33. And he claimed to be the bridegroom in response, which is a picture of the Messiah. The bridegroom come from his bride. And then they question him about working on the Sabbath, and he told them he was the fulfillment of King David, the anointed one, or Messiah, and he claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath, the one who works on the Sabbath, which only God can do. Only God decides what happens on the Sabbath and works on the Sabbath. So what is the reaction of the Pharisees? Chapter 4, verse 11. Sorry, chapter 6, verse 11. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. And in other Gospels, we know that what they began to do is plot his death. This is how old Israel responded to Jesus. There's much in all the Gospels about Jesus' rejection by Israel. And so Jesus chooses 12 apostles, 12 sent ones who are to have the authority to preach and teach and heal and cast out demons to do what he had been doing. Foundational leaders on which the church would be built. Their writings we have in our hand now. Jesus never wrote a word. The church is resting on the foundation of Jesus Christ's work recorded, witnessed, inscripturated by the 12 apostles. And Paul, obviously. So are we following what they teach? Are we pouring over what they have passed on to us? Why are we following their lead? And what a rag 
ragtag bunch they were. We're, we're told, aren't we, in verse 14, there was Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, all fishermen, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, the tax collector, Thomas, the skeptic, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot. I mean, Jesus chose people at the opposite ends of the political spectrum. You had Matthew, who was a collaborator with the Romans, collecting their taxes, and then you had Simon the Zealot, who was a terrorist, trying to get rid of the Romans by warfare. And Jesus brings them all together, even the traitor, into his new community, the new Israel of God. So are we following his 12 apostles? He started this new Israel. Are we following their example as he as they followed his. I don't know if you've been following the Rugby World Cup. Anybody been following the Rugby World Cup? Anybody watched the match last night? It, it was a stunning, it's been stunning rugby. Uh, but for those who know anything about rugby, and I'm not pretending to, that I do know much about rugby, it, it, it's an amazing series of games. Um, but you can, you can tell the influence of, of one person on, on rugby kicking. Now, I may be wrong on this. Those of you who are experts in rugby will be able to tell me. But you find a lot of the rugby kickers will do this before they kick. And you, you, you watch um, Owen Farrell, and, and they'll do all this kind of business. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I'm just making an idiot of myself. Yeah? yeah. Who first did that? Johnny Wilkinson. Johnny Wilkinson. We, we know that's, that was his methodology. That's how he did it. And everybody's copied him, whether they've been trained by Johnny Wilkinson or whether they've just copied him. Now everyone is doing it because it was so successful. I know, it's a, I just wanted to talk about the rugby, really. <laughs> uh, well, in their teaching, in their way of life, in their spiritual power, the apostles modelled all they did on their master, Jesus Christ. They were trained by him. The Holy Spirit unusually equipped them to establish the church. We are reading the fruit of their witness and testimony. The apostles never courted political power because their master never did. Did Jesus ever ally himself with Jewish leaders? No. Did he ever hold back in what he said for fear of offending the Herodians? No. Did Paul, who was high up in the power structures of the Jewish state, start to use the power structures of the Jewish state? No. He was beaten. He was stoned. He had death threats. And he was eventually executed by the Romans, as were all the apostles apart from John. Part of following the teaching of the apostles' teaching is that political allegiances come second to allegiance to Jesus Christ, and we're not to confuse the two. Confusion between the Church of England as a political entity and following the apostles' teaching is a confusion we need to avoid, but it still abounds. Following the sectarian teaching of Roman Catholic and Protestant in Northern Ireland is something that should have been avoided. Following the Dutch Reformed Church in support of apartheid Following the church in its support of slavery rather than its opposition to these things should have been avoided. How would we have avoided those things in Christian history if we've got clear that Jesus is establishing a new Israel, a new kingdom, a new family that doesn't have the political ambitions of the old? See, our allegiance to the apostles 
as to Jesus, severs any allegiance to a particular political ideology, to land, to power. Because how then can you love your enemies? A new Israel of God. So follow, pattern our lives and the way that we work on the 12 apostles and everything they teach in the New Testament. And you'll find it's not political. In fact, what it does is plunges into persecution, potentially. And this is our next point. A new kingdom of God. Jesus began a new kingdom of God, so trust in his power. We pick it up in verse 17, and don't worry, we are going to speed up. Now, just before we look at this second point, that, that Jesus began a new kingdom of God, so trust in his power, we, I, I just need to suggest, I don't think it's critical, but I think it's important for uh, how I'm going to uh, exegete, that, that bring out the meaning of this sermon, that I don't think it's the same sermon as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. Why? Well, four reasons, very, very quickly. Verse 17, he went down with them and stood on a level place. Level place, different to a mountain. Okay, They're different places, plain. Secondly, a large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who have come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. If you look back at Matthew chapter 5, they've come from a different place. They've come from the east, Syria, and the Decapolis. So this is a different sermon in a different place. Thirdly, the audience here is far less Jewish than the audience of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus never quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes in the Sermon on the Plain. In the Sermon on the Mount, he quotes it every, every few sentences. You've heard that it was said, you've heard that it was written, quoting from the Ten Commandments. No quotations here from the Old Testament scriptures. And fourthly, there are no woes in the Sermon on the Mount. Just blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But then it's just blessing, 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 and there's no woes. Here there's four woes, which suggests that there's a balance here. Uh, you may not uh, care too much about that, but I know for some of us, we, I am departing from some of the commentators here, so, so I want to give you my reasoning rather than just you know, expect you to accept what I'm saying. So go and check what I'm saying with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7. to This is part of Luke's careful investigation. He hasn't just sort of, oh, I know, I'll put in the next half because Jesus forgot to put the woes in. No. This is a record of what Jesus actually said. And what is the power that's going on here? Well, verse 19 Everybody's come to be healed of their diseases and, and, and have impure spirits. And verse 19, the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. I, mean, I know a, a number of us here have got various aches and pains and problems with our joints. Imagine that you were there on that day. You're walking towards Jesus. And power is coming from him. And you realize instantly you are healed. And the person next to you is healed. In fact, everyone is being healed because there is such power coming from this man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It's flowing out to everyone. Here is a kingdom of power. 
Surely it must be a kingdom of health and wealth and political power. I mean, who could stand in the way of this man? You can understand why John records the crowd trying to make Jesus king by force. Come on, Jesus, you can be king. If you can heal everybody, if you can raise the dead, if you can get rid of evil, we want you as our king. He has almighty power. And then Jesus says these words. Verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now. For you will be satisfied. He's expecting his followers to be poor. And hungry. And weeping. And hated. And rejected. Verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors, or literally fathers, treated the prophets. How can the two go together? Well, because this power is a spiritual power. It's a power that shows us the kingdom of God in history so that we know what the kingdom of God will be like when Jesus returns. It's not a physical kingdom because it's populated by those who are poor, hungry, rejected, weeping. Now, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it could mean poverty of spirit, as Matthew records. And certainly that's the connotation earlier on in Luke's Gospel with Isaiah 51. Remember, Jesus has come to proclaim good news for the poor. It doesn't just mean the economically poor. It's in the context of Isaiah. It's those who are poor because they are faithful in Israel. But I think that's exactly what's going on here. It's not that Jesus is saying poverty is good and hunger is good and weeping is good. He's saying, well, if you embrace the kingdom, that will be your lot. If the power structures in the world, the culture, the nation in which you live are anti-Christian, which they almost always are, then you'll be excluded from preferment or getting the job you want or getting the food you want. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Which is why he goes on to say, verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors or fathers, and I think he has the the. Israel's uh, leaders in, in view here treated the false prophets. See, I don't think Jesus is here saying there's something right about being poor and wrong about being rich. The, the Bible's quite clear that you can be poor and not right with God and rich and not right with God. What Jesus is teaching here is that the implications, the effects to his original hearers. We must always go back to the original hearers and what it meant for them in interpreting the Bible. If they were to follow Jesus in that day, they'd be thrown out of the synagogue, as you can read out about all through Acts. They'd be hounded and executed by the Romans, as you can read about all the way through Acts. So for our day, what's the application it's saying that if we're following the apostles, if we're part of the kingdom of God, 
we should expect there to be rejection and opposition and hatred towards us. Yes, there'll be people who become Christians. The, the, the power of Jesus will be at work. But in, in a political sense, we will be excluded from the power structures. We will be impoverished. We might go hungry, as many Christians throughout the world do, because of their faith. And worse. I mean, if you're a Christian in Gaza at the moment, do you not think you're at the bottom of the pile? Or if you're a Christian in Israel at the moment, well, we don't even hear about the Christians in Gaza or the Christians in Jerusalem who have been persecuted for thousands of years. Here's another of my ridiculous illustrations. Anyway, here we go. Uh, we're all being encouraged to go electric, aren't we? Yeah? So, so you know, sort of ULEs uh, and various other things that uh, the government's rightly trying to wean us off fossil fuels. Uh, I, I'm not a skeptic when it comes to global warming. If you want to talk with me about that later, do so. I, I think scientifically it's a thing. I think it's real. But we're encouraged to be going electric. Cars, some of us have got electric cars, heat pumps. Crazy expensive, aren't they? But that's supposed to be where we're going. Solar panels. And there's a moral dimension to this, if you accept that global warming is, is true and real, which, which I do. But talk to me and others about that later if you want. In other words, to keep going with the old way of doing things, the old power has a moral dimension to it. See, the new power of Jesus' kingdom is not the old power of the kingdom of David leading out his armies, trying to conquer land. It was once that way in the kingdom of God, but no longer. The new power is not the old power of conquest, the battle of Jericho. The, the way in which the, Israel, in the Old Testament, invaded land and either enslaved or killed the inhabitants. That's the old way, that's the old kingdom. And if as Christians, if the church goes back to the old way, there is an inherent denial of the new way that Jesus does things and his apostles do things. So which power will we trust in? Will it be the power of Jesus, a power that can instantly heal, that can raise the dead, a power that can deal with sin and the devil and hell for which we need to wait? Or the political power of today, which is almost always anti-Christian? See, trusting in Jesus Christ may mean relative poverty now in some parts of the world. Increasingly in our culture and in our day, it will be excluded, mean being excluded, being misunderstood, maybe losing our jobs, maybe losing our careers. It may mean hunger now, but satisfaction when the kingdom comes. It may mean grief now but, and, and weeping now, but there will be joy when Jesus returns. It may mean hatred, rejection, and misunderstanding now, but it's always been that way in the new kingdom of God, the new Israel. It's always been that way. It was that way, actually, in the Old Testament as well for the faithful remnant. But will we trust in his power? Uh, I haven't got time to go into all the different 
ramifications of this. Maybe we can talk about it later. But can we see that what's going on in Israel and Gaza is the old way of doing things, the old religion's way of doing things, conquering land by divine right? Can, can we see that? And therefore, as Christians, we need to be very, very careful of ally allying ourselves with either Israel or Palestine. Because they're both old religious ways of going about for following their religion. It involves land. Is the New Kingdom about land? No, it's about the whole world. It's about Jews and Gentiles. It's about a temple. And some Christians do think that the temple will be rebuilt. I think that's a mistake. And therefore ally themselves with a political power that can rule by divine right. No, the temple is Jesus. All the images of the Old Testament are now fulfilled in Jesus, the new temple. We are the temple of God now, are we not? And a sacrifice, is there going to be a renewal of the sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem? No, because the sacrifice of Jesus has finished all sacrifices. He's the way we now come to God. So because there's a new Israel of God and a new kingdom of God, there's also a new family of God. And this is our final point. We're to trust in his power. And therefore, because we trust in his power and we follow the apostles, we're part of a new family of God. So we're to love like Jesus. Now, I'm not going to say much on this. Not because there's not lots to say. But I just think it's so challenging. We just need to let the challenge rest in our hearts. Verse 27. But to you who are listening... If you're part of this new kingdom, part of this new Israel, what are we to do? And can this go with a political kingdom? Does it fit? Verse 27. But to you who are listening, love your enemies. Do good to those that hate you. Or verse 35. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful as your Heavenly Father is merciful. There are certain family reflexes, aren't there? I don't know if your family has certain sort of habits. Um, there's a Parker family reflex, a sort of family habit. It's, it's this. And you might think that's some sort of beard thing. It's not, because my sister and my mum do it as well. Uh, and they haven't got beards, I just want to say. Um, so it's just, I don't know, it's a sort of pensive kind of, mm, I'm thinking. Uh, Mim has a sort of family reflex. I won't, I won't tell you what that is, because it might embarrass her. Uh, what, what's your family? What are the family habits that you you know people know? Oh right, yeah, yeah, that's that's, that's, what, that's what that sort of family does. Or this, or I, don't, I don't know what it might be. What's God's family's reflex? What characterizes His children? They love their enemies. They love their enemies. They do good to their enemies. They bless those who curse them. They lend to those who hate them, not expecting to get anything back. Just, just read through the practical examples that Jesus gives. It's, it's not difficult to understand. So as I finish, do you have enemies? 
Are there people in your heart that you are tempted to hate? To take vengeance? Well, if we're part of the family of God, that is something we need to turn away from. Let me be clear. If, if those who hate us have done something criminal, part of loving them is that they face up to justice. If they've done something seriously wrong, it doesn't mean we just let all charges drop or that we don't pursue the law. But our love for them is to be like the love God has shown his children. While we were still sinners, while we're still his enemies, rebels against us, shaking our fists in his face, saying, I don't want to go what, do what you want me to do, God. I just want to do my own thing. He loves Enemies like you and me. He died on the cross in the person of his son so that we can be at peace, reconciled with him. And once that's happened to us, we share the family likeness. We love our enemies. Now, I know that's really challenging. I find that really, really challenging. Where can we start? We start by praying for them. So there's the challenge. Will you, will I, Continue or maybe start praying for the people we're most tempted to hate, most tempted to avoid. And if we will, and if our love starts to grow in us by the power of Jesus at work in us, well then wouldn't that be an amazing thing that there's reconciliation between people because we start to pray for them. Reconciliation between black and white in South Africa. Reconciliation, as there has been. Reconciliation between Roman Catholic and Protestant in Northern Ireland. Reconciliation between political views. Reconciliation in nations. But it all starts not with a political kingdom, but with the new Israel, the new kingdom, the new family that Jesus rules, that he empowers. So let's come to him now for that power that we need. Let's pray. Lord, please forgive us for ways in which we turn to easy solutions that avoid the work that we need to do in our own hearts to be more fully ruled on earth as you want us to be from heaven with your family likeness. Lord, please forgive us for the, the vengeance, the hatred, the war that we have in our hearts towards those who've done us harm. Lord, please help us to be more like Jesus. Help us to live out what we truly are if we are yours, that we might be merciful and kind and generous practically to those who are our enemies, that we might start by praying for them. And so live out that true family likeness and show people the true, the only kingdom of God. Amen.